This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 22 of Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And Max is not here this evening. He's uh, en route, but uh, there's like a, um, a whale probe in between <laughs> here and there, and uh, it's causing a lot of interference. And if he doesn't so, translate what it's saying, we're all going to die. Yeah, yeah. He may need to uh, slingshot around the sun yes, just so that he can, he can show up to last week's episode. <laughs> uh, but uh, this one, I don't know, we'll, we'll have to see. Well, today we're going to begin uh, a new series in which we are going to look at the work of Leonard Nimoy, um, specifically his... Uh, I guess work as a television, I'm not going to say like a television star, television personality, because we're going to look at, um, in addition to his Star Trek stuff, three shows that he did, but only one of which was um, an acting role. The other two were as a host of a non-fiction program, I guess Well, put non-fiction in quotes on at least one of those. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. So, um, yeah, we figured today, as always, we would start by looking at uh, the work that he did in Star Trek, which I know is something that we touched on uh, a few weeks ago, but we figured we could get a little bit more in-depth about it this week. And we're going to look at um, his performance as Spock in all of the various incarnations of Star Trek, and also his work as a director on the Star Trek films. So, I mean, let's just get started with the original series. He obviously played Spock, which was um, probably, I would say, the most iconic character in all of Star Trek, actually. Um, he's the one who stood out. He's the one with the pointy ears. Even if Kirk was sort of the, the main character on the show and everything, like, to an outsider's perspective, if you were to visually put up a picture of one character and say, this is Star Trek, it would be Spock. Yeah, you know, I I would have fought you on that a couple of years ago, but I really do think that um, Spock was the one character that they they could replace the captain, they could replace the crew, but Spock was always the one character that they never quite found uh, any sort of replacement for. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's that played very heavily into why Abrams made a point to bring him back. Uh, or, you know, the screenwriters made a point to bring him back um, for, you know, those two Star Trek movies, you know, the 2009 and Into Darkness. So I while I would have fought you on that, I definitely agree with you. S- Spock has come to represent Trek in a way no other character did. Yeah, and I mean, this is something that we'll probably get into more in our wrap-up, but, you know, I always kind of saw that as an acknowledgement of the franchise on the whole, and I think that goes into um, Leonard Nimoy and not just the character of Spock, because in addition to being uh, the the actor who was sort of like the face of Star Trek 
in terms of uh, his performance as Spock, he was also um, someone who had a, a very big hand in bringing the uh, movies to the screen as a you know a director and a producer and a writer as well and and he's also uh the guy who sort of bridged the gap of various um generations you know what mm-hmm. with his appearance in in next generation and all that stuff and uh yeah i i really do feel like um his presence in star trek 09 goes beyond just the character but also you know represents the franchise on the whole which is kind of cool so uh going back to the beginning his work on the original series, I mean, normally I would say, like, what did you think about it? But, I mean, I guess that's kind of weird <laughs> to say. Yeah, but, I mean, what do, you, what, what do you think about um, the importance of, of that portrayal and that character in the original series? Um, you know, uh, there was a, a friend of mine, uh, also named Mike, uh, years ago, who hit on why the character of Spock works so well, uh, especially in the original series. In that he is, uh, you know, Kirk says it in, in you know, Star Trek II and everything, but he really is the most human in the sense that it's weirdly appropriate that he's this, you know, half Vulcan, like he's struggling to control his emotions. In a sense, Spock is really the model human in that he has emotions and they acknowledge them, but he shows that it's possible to have them but not be controlled by them. You know, you strip away all of the Vulcan stuff and, you know, sci-fi is always supposed to act as, you know, metaphor or allegory or blah, 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 whatever. Spock really, I think, acts as the most dynamically human character on that show. As the person who, going out into society, regardless of how he feels inside, has to learn how to control himself and play by you know, a, a set of rules, a set of, um, you know, guidelines that direct where he is supposed to put those energies. He's not supposed to be consumed with self. He's supposed to put self aside, contextualize it, and then go out into the universe and, you know, uh, use his intellect to further everybody's cause. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. You know, it's it's really interesting how uh, you sort of take the things that make us human and sort of make that um, more of an abstract concept. Yeah. And by doing that, you uh, make us reflect on what it is that makes us human. So, yeah, it's interesting. The thing that I think makes his performance stand out so much is the fact that he took it so seriously, you know? Yeah. On the surface, this is um, the most ridiculous of all of the characters in that, you know, he's not a human. He's got pointy ears, which is just weirdly comical (laughs) in a sense. Uh, Very, very sort of cliche. Uh, His eyebrows are all weird and everything like that. And then he's not acting like a human even, you know. It's not just like, oh, I have this weird backstory, which is like... Um, everyone else's backstory, but different, you know, it's, it's like he is someone who views life in a different way. His Mm -hmm. philosophies are so different from those of humans that he is forced to act differently by those philosophies. 
And that's present in like every single scene that he's in. And a lot of the things that make us human, a lot of the, the things which people talk about when they talk about humanizing uh, characters are stripped away from from Spock. And mm. it would in, a, in lesser hands, it would not work at all because it would be way over the top and um, it would just be ridiculous. Yeah. But he was so serious about it and worked so hard to make it um, make sense, to make it logical, that uh, it totally works, you know? And and the character is, is definitely um, better for his uh, contribution, you know, because of his contribution. Uh, and, and you can see that in, you know, all the stuff that you hear about behind the scenes, about, you know, the creation of the Vulcan neck pinch and everything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's like all of this is stuff that he brought to the table because he understood the character better than anyone. And um, it, it, it's what made the character so iconic. Well, it, it's it's funny, too, just real real quick, uh, because you mentioned he, he took it so seriously and was so focused in his portrayal. I'll never forget uh, one of my favorite picture sequences in the book Star Trek Memories uh, by Shatner is he found a series of pictures where... Nimoy is like he Shatner and Kelly are just cracking up and uh, uh, Nimoy is stone faced, except there's one shot in a sequence of like three or four where there's a little smirk where mm-hmm. he almost broke. And Shatner actually had a caption along the lines of like, this is one of my proudest moments that I actually almost made him break on set. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but what a testament to what a great actor he was. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. All right, so so after the original series uh, ended, and apparently he was not happy about the fact that it continued even as long as it did, you know, because he was very proud of the work that he did on the show, and when that that uh, quality level started to drop off, he didn't want to be involved with it. But, um, you know, stuck it out, as I think he was contractually obligated to do, yeah. and the series ended, and he went off and did some other things, which we'll talk about next week. And when time came for uh, a relaunch of the show, this time in animated form, he uh, was approached about doing it. And this is an interesting story, which I guess had been out there, but I didn't hear it until uh, just a couple weeks ago when he passed away. Um, But his involvement in the animated series almost didn't happen. And the reason was because he was standing up for what was right, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, George Takei uh, mentioned that uh, when the animated series was uh, in development, the uh, budget was definitely limited. And uh, because of that, they were only able to afford to pay William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, since they were the two stars, and then James Doohan and Majel Barrett, since they did all of the other voices. And uh, they were going to have um, Dewan and Barrett do all of the supporting cast voices like Sulu and, and uh, Bones and Uhura and, and all that stuff. And when Nimoy found out about that, he was like, that's lame, guys. You know, I mean, for one thing, yeah. um, you know, you're kind of uh, spitting on, on, on all of these these people who have... Uh, uh, created these iconic characters, but also, 
this is a show which is about diversity and you're getting rid of, you know, <laughs> all of the <laughs> non-white people. So, you know, what's what's the deal, guys? And because of that, because he went to bat for them um, and risked, you know, his job, really. And, and this is back before they were getting all those paychecks for for the uh, the um, reruns and, and, and whatnot. Uh, he was able to get um, George Takei and Nichelle Nichols and DeForest Kelly hired. Didn't work out for Walter Koenig. They had to cut someone. But yeah. he did get he did get a writing gig out of it, so... I guess that's how, something. How many episodes did Koenig write, just out of curiosity? Because I, I haven't worked my way all the way through the animated series again, and I've only seen <laughs> one or two. <laughs> he just wrote one episode. Okay. Have you seen Yesteryear? I have. I have. All right. That's, the well, one then that's all you need to watch. <laughs> it's a good episode. It's a very good episode. It's better mm. than most original series episodes. Um yeah. Uh, it's it's excellent and and it is you know kind of like the, the Spock episode you know it really s- sort of showcases uh that character and and everything and it adds a lot of backstory to the character and uh it's cool and you know Nimoy's performance in it I mean you know whatever it's voice work but you know it is what it is Hey don't be dismissive of voice work voice no. work is good stuff Oh no hey hey there's people you know like you hear uh um What's the guy? The guy who does uh, like Ren and Stimpy, and and he does the voice of Fry. Oh, uh, uh, oh, uh, Billy. Um, yeah, Billy. Uh, Billy West. Billy, Billy West, West. Yeah, you hear him talk about it, and he's like, "Oh God, you know, you look at all these movies, you know, and and all of them, all these animated movies have like these big stars doing voice work, and he's like, that's you know a bunch of crap right there because you know <laughs> this is." a talent and there are people you know like billy west who are really good at it Mm -hmm. and then you get you know people in there who aren't even comedians or whatever and they're just trying to do these things and basically just talking just the way that they do and it's like that's not that's not what the art is about you know yeah so i mean i don't know here it's it was a different scenario in that obviously Nimoy had uh, um, originated the character, and I, I always thought it was great how they were able to get the entire original cast back uh, to do that show. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but the show is pretty awful. It's really awful. <laughs> Although I, there's, <laughs> this is one of those rare instances where you actually have a harsher opinion of something than I do. Uh, I, I think the show is charming. I think it's charming too. It, but I also think it's awful. But here's the thing, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just because it's been coming up or because I've been paying attention lately or whatever, but there is a thing that's been going around. Drew said it, and there's a bunch of people on the Babel conference who were saying this and everything, um, but everyone's like, technology is at the point now where you could easily do like high-end CGI versions of these episodes. And, you know, the scripts are all written by the people who wrote the original episodes. You've got the original voices in there. Why not just do high-quality animation? That would be awesome. I think uh... that's the exact opposite of reality. Those scripts were terrible. And the voice (laughs) acting was awesome, whatever, the music was awesome, all that stuff. But the thing to me which really drew me to it was the fact that it was done with that low-budget 
70s style animation. And it's like this is such a weird anomaly. Like there is a version of Star Trek where it's just like the, you know, original series, but it's animated and it's in this yeah. cheesy 70s style. And yeah, that's that's the best, you know? Well, given given the cheesy 70s style, does that mean Scooby-Doo is in continuity with Star Trek because of the animated series? I don't I don't think that that counts. I think that's stretching it a little bit. I mean, you could say that I think what Scooby-Doo and, and Batman have had a crossover. So you could oh, well, say they that, definitely are. Yeah, yeah Scooby-Doo is in the DC universe and by extension, like the Adams family and everything like that. But um, but not uh, not not Star Trek. No, Bummer. come on. Don't don't be ridiculous. Oh, yes. <laughs> Said the man who constructed the Shatner cinematic universe. <laughs> By the way, you know, you know, we 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 the, the getting off topic a little bit here. Uh, you know, last week we were saying like, you know, there's no one who's done this. You know, there's no one who you could say has done this. I think I found someone else who has done this almost as much as Shatner. It's Fifty Cent. Oh, <laughs> it's true. I was just yesterday. I, I got to see Spy, and um, Fifty Cent plays himself in that. He's in Morning Glory. He's in Las Vegas. Uh, he's in a number of television shows. He's in Entourage, which means that the Entourage movie. I mean, there is a pretty dense 50-cent mythology, um, <laughs> 50-cent cinematic universe. <laughs> On that one, I'm just going to take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not right. going to go through any watching of that. Not at all. <laughs> we could do Morning Glory for this show, you know, because it's from the producer of the new Star Trek movie. But anyway, yeah. No, yeah. See, my my take on the animated series is always the opposite. I think it was Max who came up with this originally, but it's it's perfect and it's exactly what they should be doing. You know, you've got like this this animation stuff. You've got it in high quality now. It appears that it actually is in HD on um, Netflix now, and they only used like five film cells or animation cells yeah. to make it. Yeah. So you get those. And you 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 write new better stories, and you just animate it, like reanimate it, like C Lab style, right? Yeah, I'm down with that. Absolutely. I, I mean, how come no one's done this? I don't understand. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So that was the animated series, and uh, a couple years later, uh, they went back to live action with the theatrical motion pictures. Uh, starting with the motion picture, which uh, Nimoy uh, did return for, even though there was some question about that, because back in between, when it came very close to uh, um, there being a a new Star Trek show called Phase 2, Nimoy wasn't going to return. Didn't he have some problem with Roddenberry during that time period, too? I don't know. I read an article uh, shortly after uh, Nimoy died where they were talking about he had to basically mend fences with Roddenberry. Like they Hmm. didn't get along very well at all. And that was one of the reasons he didn't want to come back for motion picture. Now, it's only one article. It was in the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. And um, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt if you want to. But one of the things they cited was that Nimoy just didn't care for Roddenberry. Like the the two of them just didn't get along for whatever reason. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, what whatever it was, I don't know. It would have been weird to see Star Trek without uh, Nimoy. I mean, Phase Two was definitely going to be a different thing, 
and you could see them like compensating because you can see sort of like uh, bits and pieces of phase two in the motion picture. You know, yeah. the character of Ilea was going to be there and the character of Decker was going to be there. And uh, it would have been interesting to see how that show would have worked without um, the presence of Spock. There was also going to be a Vulcan. Yeah, and wasn't he, wasn't that actor, wasn't that character uh, the one who died in the transporter accident in the movie? Yeah, it was. I don't think it was the same actor, but it's the same character. Yeah. Okay. So, but Nimoy did come back, you know which was great, and uh, his character went through a pretty huge arc throughout the movies, you know, and in, in, uh, in the first one, he was going through um, Kolinar, yeah. which was the Vulcan ritual to get rid of all, what, or it's like to go to pure logic or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah, you purge yourself of all emotion. Right. And uh, he he didn't quite complete that ceremony and ended up having to, uh, um, well, ended up going back to the Enterprise and and, and continuing um, on another five-year mission. And then, of course, that led to Wrath of Khan, where he sacrifices himself, spoilers, for yeah. uh, the crew. And then in Star Trek Three, he comes back to life after having died. What I think you see with uh, those last three movies, four, five, and six, is um, kind of an, an evolution of the character uh, where he's going beyond. It's not just, you know, it kind of starts off as like, well, he's a little off because he was just dead. But I think what you see more than that, and, and it's especially true in number six, and he carries this through into uh, the J.J. verse movies as well, is you're seeing, um, I think, a character who has come to terms with his human half and has learned how to incorporate that into his overall uh, personality and become like a full person through yeah. that. You know, I think it's kind of really summed up uh, in that line in Star Trek six, where he says like logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end, you know? And yeah. I know that some, some people have talked about this before and everything, you know, it's not like, it's not like I'm breaking new ground here or anything like that, but I think that's one of the reasons why I respond to Spock in the movies a lot more than I do to Spock in the show. You know, Spock in the show really is sort of like an outsider and everything, and, and in in the movies, he's sort of learned how to incorporate himself into this society. And yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, th I think that you, you definitely hit on something as well, where Nimoy did something, and, and again, likewise, I'm not saying anything that's you know groundbreaking here, but Nimoy uh, did something so incredibly unique in terms of his portrayal through those movies, where the character has an arc. You know, you watch Sean Connery in, in James Bond, there's, there's no real sort of growth there. You know, he's just James Bond in each movie. Roger Moore doesn't really advance too much as James Bond. Spock yeah. actually follows an arc. And, it, you know, it, it makes the motion picture kind of worthwhile to watch to see his arc start there. But the, the arc that he goes through in all six of those movies is really remarkable. Yeah, and, and it's, kind of, it's kind of weird to, to even sort of nail it down because... 
he goes through some some crazy shifts in that I mean from the first movie to the second movie where he dies and then he comes back to life and then he's off in the fourth movie and then you know but the fifth movie is something which people don't really pay attention to and then you get to the sixth movie where you have like this finished character it's just yeah. like it's a crazy journey but um he makes it work and um yeah i i, th- I think it's it's really cool and then you you really kind of see that taken even further in um, Star Trek 09 and Star Trek Into Darkness, which, you know, we can get into now, actually. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, what did you think about his appearance in those movies? I know we've touched on it a little bit already, but, you know. Well, I, I thought... <laughs> Well, I, I thought that in Into Darkness, um, it was really a cheap throwaway cameo stunt. The thing that I was afraid it was going to be in 09. So I'll, I'll, I've said that about Into Darkness, but in 09, he winds up legitimizing the entire plot, in my opinion, because he does continue that arc and has, you know, he even has that perfect send off where he says to his alternate self, you know, go with your gut. You know, like that's his big lesson is follow your instincts every so often. Trust me, you're going to eventually find out that logic's not the only thing where it's at. And it's a beautiful moment. And even, you know, when he runs across Kirk in the cavern and, uh, you know, it, it has this real moment where he's like, you know, uh, you see it play on his face of, so is this all meant to happen? Um you know, it it is. It's a continuation of a character who has not only become more human, but is willing to uh, believe in the possibility of something that hasn't yet been discovered that might be guiding uh, the the fate of the galaxy, as it were. You know, by being present and realizing that even in this alternate time, the crew of the Enterprise is destined to be the crew of the Enterprise. So sort of that acceptance of destiny. Yeah, uh, you know, it's that his inclusion in those movies, you know, I I think there there was a lot of um, people who were skeptical of that because, you know, a lot of people thought there should be a clean break and everything. And Mm -hmm. I can understand that. But at the same time, I like the idea of passing the torch to this new crew and everything. And... um, like you were saying, the uh, send-off in 09 is so perfect that, yeah. you know, you kind of want that to be the last appearance of Spock in Star Trek. And when he showed up in Into Darkness, I, I'm i actually one of those people who really liked that. You know, I know a lot of people were really critical of it. I thought it was great, you know. I thought that's like such a cool moment where and 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 such a a new Spock moment, new as in like movie universe, movie, movie era Spock. It's such a movie era Spock thing to do. Like, I told you I would never do this because it's not logical. However, I'm going to break my rule in this instance because it's really freaking important. You know, I just love that. Is it necessary? No. Do I like it? Yes. However, and I think I might have said this before, but, you know, now that he has passed away and that is his last appearance in Star Trek, it's kind of disappointing because it would have been nice for his final appearance in Star Trek to have been that beautiful send-off that we got in 09. 
you know, which, which I, I think speaks directly contradictory to his appearance in Into Darkness because it really, I you know, I hold nothing against Nimoy for appearing. I think that they were trying to be clever, but it was everything that shouldn't have been done. It's it, you know what? It's everything that that the appearance of Kirk would have been in O nine. It really is. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And and it's one of those things where, you know, we do this thing on Standard Orbit where we go through uh, the various seasons of, of the original series and we ask the question whether or not the series would be better on the whole if an episode was present or not present. Mm-hmm. And then we've created sort of like the Standard Orbit mythology of the original series, which only involves the episodes, which make it perfect, you know? So like, oh, maybe the series would work better if this one wasn't there. And there's sometimes where you got to take out great episodes in order to make the overall thing work better. And I think this is, if you're looking at the overall Spock arc, even though I love that scene in Into Darkness, I think you need to lose it in order to make that Spock arc perfect. Although that appearance did give him the uh, distinct honor of portraying Spock more times than either uh, Sean Connery or Roger Moore portrayed James Bond. So yeah, in the end, it, went, it, it, it matters for the record books, I guess. <laughs> and now you were saying that uh, Hugh Jackman's about to tie it with Wolverine? Yeah, with Wolverine. So now is he going to be in, in um, what is it, Apocalypse as well or not? No, apparently, uh, I, you know what, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, actually mentally go through it, but he, when he made the announcement uh, that he was going to be in Wolverine 3, uh, Rolling Stone was the one that said he was going to be portraying the character for an eighth time, matched only by Nimoy. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. For main characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. And it's crazy that Nimoy um, was the guy who, who, who did that, but I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. That's strange. It is. I mean, when you think how, well, I mean, I don't even know that with their math, whether they're counting never say never again for Connery or not. I think you'd have to, right? Well, it's non-canon. doesn't actually count in the continuity. I guess so. Hmm. No, but that would be seven, I think. Yeah, because I think Moore was in seven and Connery was in six. But if you count never say never again, then that's seven for him as well. Okay. I think that's the way it worked. Okay, well, uh. You know, Nimoy's contribution to the world of Star Trek wasn't just in front of the camera, it was behind the camera as well, in particular as a director. Um, He directed Star Trek's three and four and had a a pretty big hand in number six as well, um, creatively speaking. Um, But yeah, what, what do you think about his work as a director? Well, I, uh, I, I sort of fall into Max's camp where I revile Star Trek three. Um, but I don't think that it's Nimoy's fault per se. I think that that is uh, some sort of horrible demon child born out of necessity because they wanted to bring Spock back. Yeah. Um, but for four, I think that it speaks to his talents as a director because he created, I mean, four is easily the most outside of uh, the Star Trek 2009 uh, by Abrams. It's the most crossover friendly Star Trek film that exists because yeah. you don't need to be a Star Trek fan. Like my wife can sit down and watch Star Trek four and enjoy it because it's not, it's not too Star Trek for her. 
it's the fish out of water, you know, sort of, uh, you know, poking fun at modern society sort of uh, comedy. That's uh, And he even said he wanted to have a, a caper. But, you know, when you also think about the the Star Trek films as a whole, I mean, like you said, he, he had a big hand in creatively in six, even though he wasn't the director. But four is really the first big, I guess you could say, social statement one of the series. Um, you know, you had sort of the whatever they were going for in motion picture, but you had sort of very personal arcs. And four was really about the fate of humanity, which is what Star Trek is supposed to be all about. And uh, I, I remember Nimoy's interview uh, from one of the, you know, one of the behind the scenes documentaries about the movie where he was presenting this idea of the environment as a house of cards. And you could remove cards without everything falling over, but eventually you were going to hit a keystone where it was going to cause everything to fall apart. And that's what he was trying to portray with Star Trek four. And, you know, he, he made a pretty significant environmental social statement, uh, with four that was also a big crossover hit. So, you know, hats off to him. You know, he, he did a really good job. Yeah. And, and, you know, even though he didn't write it himself, uh, and well, I guess he is credited with, uh, coming up with the story, but I, I think that that was his contribution to the movie, like, um, our big contribution to the movie was saying like, this is what I want to do. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be directing this and this is the thing that I want to do. And, uh, he did an extremely good job directing, uh, Star Trek four, which is really cool because, you know, it makes sense for them to say like, Star Trek three is a big hit. Uh, he did a good job of directing it. We want to have him back because we know that he'll do a good job of directing Star Trek four. But Star Trek four is not the same type of movie as Star Trek three. I mean, they're both Star Trek, but they're completely different. You know, you you would be much more, um, you know, likely to give Star Trek four to like a comedic director, you know, someone who, you know, today the equivalent, oh, someone like, okay, back then, let's say Ivan Reitman, you know, who was combining, um, you know, science fiction with humor. But they gave it to Nimoy, and he, you know, knocked it out of the park. Uh, one, of, one of the, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of really good Star Trek movies, but Star Trek Four is one of the best, I would say. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of hip to hate it now. It's, it, it's a weird that that's, that that's become a thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, back in the day, that was everyone was like, "Well, Star Trek Four. It was like the trouble with Tribbles of the of the movies, you know. I think that's a good description. Yeah, but uh, now, yeah, there's a lot of people who don't like it, which I don't understand. I think it's a really good movie. It's not as good as like six or two, but it's very little is. Yes, very little ever will be. Yeah, no, that's true too. Um, yeah, I mean, I I I think that he is a really good director. Um. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why he was such a good director of Star Trek is because he had such a a firm grasp on the material, you know, which is evident in his performances. So it only makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any uh, final thoughts on Leonard Nimoy's work in Star Trek? Uh, Star Trek wouldn't be Star Trek without him. Simple as that. 
Yeah, I agree with that. It's it's one of those weird things where I mean, I've been saying this like nonstop since he he died, but it's like if you look at almost any other character in the history of television or movies, and you say like, boy, he he was sure good in that role, you know, even if he was like the best in that role, like I I personally still would be like. Yeah, but, you know, as far as the overall work is concerned, there were writers and directors and producers and everything that went into this. And even though he may have been, like, the face of that movie, he's hardly the one responsible for that movie's greatness, you know? With rare exceptions, of course. Nimoy, I think, is one of those rare exceptions. I mean, not to take anything away from the writers and directors and everyone else who work in Star Trek, but I'm just trying to you know, compliment Nimoy on how big his contribution was. He went way above and beyond uh, what an actor usually does um, in terms of contributing to a work. You know, he did not just put in a great performance. He added so much to the creation of that character on like a, a, uh, really on a a sort of a a, a writer's level that um, you have to credit um, the success of of Star Trek as as a, a work of art, um, in large part to Leonard Nimoy. So I agree. Yeah, uh, he will be missed. I guess that's how we're going to end each episode. He will be missed. He will be. <laughs> he will be. Yeah. Well, it's been good talking about Leonard Nimoy this week, but that's not all we're talking about here on Trek FM. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without without him and his hand guiding all of this, then, then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was, and if it had not been successful, then it, it, you know, it probably would have meant the end of Star Trek at that point. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kittimer Accords. Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about. So you would think they would have run into each other They probably hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out! Now! <laughs> the Ready Room. The movie series would not have relaunched and, and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of the Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, The Best of Both Worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek Stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary treks. Well, I've always liked the, uh, I like that episode for, I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always, it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss droids in distress and fight or flight and everything like that 
and I was just kind of watching the background, but all of a sudden I started catching myself, like stopping working and, <laughs> and just focusing on watching. And, uh, and so it just got better and better and better. And I think I was hooked by episode four, Breaking Rings. That's when I was like, okay, I like this show. This is good. Warp five. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for the other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our show on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. One way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on patreon if you visit patreon.com slash trekfm that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you these perks include early access to content exclusive content producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you want to contact us, uh, you can find a form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm you can find uh, Trek FM on Twitter at Trek FM. You can find Trek FM on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM, where you'll also find the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. Uh, John, where can people find you on the Internet? Creating problems on Twitter at Kessel Junkie. And on a weekly podcast called Words with Nerds, which you can find on iTunes and Podbean and Stitcher and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can find me right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew, where we talk about Leonard Demoy and the rest of the original series on a weekly basis. And you can also find uh, me on CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do Commentary Track Stars off-topic and commentary track stars babies making a comeback uh, <laughs> um, with it. Max and Brandon and you can also find me on Twitter at mumbles3k and you can find all of us on Twitter at comtrackstars or you can email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com and I should also note I guess that on Standard Orbit uh, a few weeks ago when uh, Nimoy passed away, we had Mark Cushman, the author of These Are the Voyages. Oh, yeah, on. yeah. And we, we talked to him about Leonard Nimoy, and he told us a lot of stuff, um, some of which I mentioned here uh, tonight. Um, but, uh, yeah, go check that out because it's definitely worth a listen. So. Yeah, it is. Before we go... We'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring 
commentary, Trek stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Books like Star Trek, Spock vs. Q, which uh, was written by Leonard Nimoy, narrated by Leonard Nimoy and John Delancey. It's 54 minutes long, and here's the description. Ambassador Spock travels back in time to subtly warn Earth's inhabitants of impending doom while calling into question humanity's priorities. However, before the truth is told, the all-powerful being Q appears and reminds Spock that he is prohibited from interfering in Earth's history. Besides, Q doesn't see mankind as something worth saving. And you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get an audiobook of your choice for free, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting commentary, Trek stars, and the network. Well, that's it for Nimoy's work on Star Trek that Star Trek was the first show that Leonard Nimoy starred in on a weekly basis and next week we will be looking at the second show that Leonard Nimoy starred in in a weekly basis which came right after Star Trek and that show is Mission Impossible yes yes